CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What does like the multi-chain future look like? The last couple of years, we've had the whole like ETH killer narrative and all these chains kind of popping up with the ethos of like, we're going to sort of be Ethereum, but better. You know, I think if, if ETH2 succeeds, I think there's an argument made that, well, like, Ethereum has won the race. But what does that mean for all of these other chains out there? Are they just going to like just go away? Are they going to just cease to exist? Well, I don't, I don't think that's the case. This episode is brought to you by Crypto.com. Nexo.io and elliptic.co. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Developer Perspectives, Ethereum 2.0 from Coindesk Podcasts. I'm Christine Kim, a Coindesk Research Analyst, and today is the final episode of our series about the hotly anticipated Ethereum 2.0 upgrade. For the past five weeks, I've chatted with the folks inside the Ethereum developer community to take a look behind the scenes at what comes next. For this episode, we're going to be discussing what remains unanswered about the Ethereum 2.0 upgrade and what is left unknown about its rollout, its impact on crypto markets, as well as its launch. Joining me for the discussion are two Coindesk colleagues of mine who have spent the last few months planning intensively for Coindesk's Ethereum economy event. I have Michael J. Casey, the Chief Content Officer of Coindesk. Hi, Michael. Hello, Christine. Happy to be here. I also have Aaron Stanley, Managing Director of Events Content at Coindesk. Great to have you on the show, Aaron. Thanks for having me. In the process of preparing for Invest Ethereum Economy, which is happening this upcoming Wednesday on October 14th, by the way, Aaron and Michael have spent a lot of time racking their brains on what it is that the public still wants to know about Ethereum 2.0 and Ethereum more broadly, of course. As the listeners of this series know, there are many facets of the upgrade from validating to staking to sharding to a whole host of other features that will change how the world's second largest blockchain by market capitalization operates. So from the perspective of my colleagues and myself who have been talking with various industry stakeholders about Ethereum and its future, what's left to discuss? Michael, what in your view are some of the remaining questions, some of the remaining key questions about Ethereum 2.0 and its impact that have yet to be fully discussed and debated? It's such a major undertaking. It's inherently unknowable. And so, you know, I think that the discussions you've already had have captured that. This is a huge grand experiment in some respects. But ultimately, you know, I I think there is this question about what happens in the marketplace. Basically, 
that the way I see it, and this is something that we're going to be leaning into quite heavily in the Ethereum economy conference, is what happens when participants have got a choice between, say, staking their ETH or in participating in DeFi or something like that. Because this is happening at the same time that there's this new zeitgeist around this phenomenal new concept of DeFi. So the fact that ETH 2.0 could, for one, actually enable DeFi, lowering fees is a big question, but there's also this core question. I think there's a lot of unanswered questions about how the market's going to behave, and there's really no way to predict it. I think your work, you've looked hard as well at what's going to happen to you know two years or however long it's going to be of the you know beacon chain ETH being locked up. You know, do we end up with a split, two versions of Ethereum, or at least two tokens that trade differently in the marketplace and the like, right? So the choices that people are going to make between this range of options on what they can do with their digital assets once we get into that ETH 2.0 phase, I think that's really one of the most interesting uh, questions. I completely agree. I think that we have spent so much talking about what will technically change about the Ethereum 2.0 network, but the markets, the crypto markets themselves are so unpredictable and will be something to keep an eye on for sure after the launch. Aaron, what key questions are on your mind about Ethereum 2.0? The big thing that I'm really fascinated by is kind of looking at this from the, the real like 30,000 foot viewpoint is what does like the multi-chain future look like essentially where, you know, we've had this the last couple of years, we've had the whole like ETH killer narrative and all these chains, uh, you know, kind of popping up that are with the kind of the ethos of like, we're going to sort of do be, be Ethereum, but better. Right. And, you know, I think if, if ETH2 succeeds, which, you know, which is still like, we have to wait and see, but if ETH2 succeeds, I think there's an argument to be made that, well, like ETH has kind of won the race, right? Or Ethereum has won the race. But like, what does that mean for all of these other chains out there? Are they just going to like, just go away? Are they going to just cease to exist? Well, I don't, I don't think that's the case. And, you know, what's going to happen to Cosmos? What's going to happen to Polkadot? Like a lot of these platforms are are doing things that are like, you know, obviously are arguably more complex than what Ethereum is doing right now. So I think you're seeing a lot of interesting conversations and a lot of interesting activity around, you know, kind of this whole idea of just interchain operability and composability across platforms where, I mean, I think the, you know, a great example of this is just the surge in Bitcoin that tokenized Bitcoin that we're now seeing on Ethereum. What's to prevent, you know, other assets from, from being tokenized and moving over to Ethereum or, or, or the other way around or, the other angle to this that I'm, I'm really curious to see is ETH2, you know, once, once the beacon chain goes live, once staking goes live, like that is not going to solve all of Ethereum's current problems right now, right? That's not going to solve like the gas fees. Not going to solve. So there's still, you know, multiple phases to this rollout. And I'm kind of curious as to like, will the market wait around for these problems to be, you know, for these, for these multiple phases to be rolled out or will, will liquidity go elsewhere to other platforms? What will be the role of of some of these uh, you know layer two solutions, which are offering very you know very compelling solutions to some of these problems that we're facing, like the gas fees and things? But see, it almost seems from my vantage point, some of these layer twos are maybe a bit too myopic in the sense that they're they're focused on like one problem, like we're we're trying to solve you know scalability, so we're going to create a solution that creates that that you know has immense throughput for 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 low cost but maybe it, it breaks composability. So, which is one of the other big sort of defining features of, of this kind of DeFi, uh, you know, yield farming wave we're seeing right now. How all these actors kind of dance together. I, I, it's not a winner take all game, right? I can see a scenario where you declare Ethereum the winner, 
but that doesn't necessarily mean that all of these other chains are are just sort of irrelevant. I, I think all of them are going to play complementary roles to with one another. And and I'm I'm just really curious to see how that that I mean this is this, this is really sort of like an unprecedented experiment in human history. And I I'm really excited to see how it stands up. Yeah, what happens to the landscape of different Ethereum competitors after Ethereum 2.0 launches, especially given that there's some pretty significant decentralized finance players already operating on multiple chains. I'm already thinking about Tether having issued, it's started to issue its stable coins on Ethereum just last year. And it's operating not just on Ethereum, but on multiple different blockchains. So that question of interoperability is definitely a big one to answer. In the midst of all these questions, I also want to talk about some answers that you, Michael and Aaron, have have found over the course of your research and planning for the event Ethereum economy. What was one thing or maybe two that initially surprised you about the Ethereum 2.0 upgrade and its roadmap for deployment? Michael? Um, I, I think you know, one of the big uh, things that was su- super surprising for me was just how, how much detail is involved in this process. It's just, it's such a massive undertaking. I don't think I realized how phased this introduction has to be. I was, you know, I was, I, I thought Beacon was going to be, I knew, I knew there was these two phases to it, but it's, it's, it's a very kind of measured approach precisely because of how difficult it is to herd all the cats across however many thousands of people are involved in this project. The fact that uh, there's all of this coordination effort that then requires a very cautious approach. And the fact that the time frame for this is still thought of as a five, I think sometimes 10 year project until we'll actually get to the very end of it once all the pieces are built into place. We kind of live in this environment of expecting it now. And, and I think that what's also interesting is that even though it is still going to be a long time until this thing, if it succeeds, uh, reaches that final point of being this all encompassing, scalable, all the bells and whistles added to it and so forth, even if we get there, uh, even if it, if it takes a long time to get there, a lot of big changes are going to happen nonetheless with these introductory phases. And so I thought Beacon was, I knew it was a, a phased effort, but I thought Beacon would just be something that wouldn't have that much impact. Whereas I think it's, it's going to be really significant, have a really significant effect precisely because all that ETH is going to get locked up inside it. And so even with the phasing, you're going to have immediate impacts. Again, from a market perspective, I think it's, it's fascinating. I don't know if I would say it's surprising, but I, I can tell you that my mind, as I've got thinking about where what happens again to the market perspective on this, I, I always think about how blockchains are a governance system, right? And, and, and governance, the whole point about governance is it puts constraints on you. And what's interesting about finance and financial engineering generally, and I'm talking about the traditional finance here, is that when governance gets in place, whether it's taxation or regulations or whatever, financial engineers come up with ways to put new, to create new products and to create price differentiation to sort of like, and then to leverage that, to arbitrage that and to find ways. So the finance has always been directly connected with finding the spaces between these kind of boundaries of governance. And so now that there's this huge project within Ethereum to essentially create boundaries of governments, right? You can't, you can get slashed or you have all of this, this time frame within which you cannot move that locked ETH back onto the original chain. I know there's going to be all sorts of fascinating financial engineering that's going to come along to try to figure out ways to create liquidity around that, 
And, and then there'll be interesting questions about, okay, what is this thing? Is that a bond or is that an extra token? And if so, you know, I personally think that people think that these, that the ETH, that there won't be a separate version of Ethereum, of Ether, for example, kind of missing the point because at the end of the day, it is not the same. It is not the same fungible token. Yeah, there's a lot of really interesting questions around that. And I, and I suppose I wasn't aware of how much potential there is through those various constraints for all these, you know, financial wizards to come along and start building things on top of it. So lots and lots to chew on. That's the thing about Ethereum 2.0, because it's a proof of stake system and also a sharded system, it is magnitudes more complex than our understanding of how proof of work works, of how miners operate. The slashing conditions, the kind of incentives that validators have before them in Ethereum 2.0 is just It's definitely rewriting and changing the game for some of these blockchain systems right now that are trying to figure out decentralized governance. And for some of our new listeners, people who are just popping into this developer perspective series now, Michael, could you just give a very brief description of what you meant by beacon? You had said that a couple of times in your answer, and I just want to make sure that our listeners understand what you mean by beacon. You're the expert, Christine, so you tell me whether I've got it right. The Beacon Chain is a separate blockchain that will be created so that a proof-of-stake system can be built in parallel to the existing proof-of-work Ethereum chain. And it's not until sometime in the future that those two chains will be merged. This is a necessary function because you just can't turn one off and start the other. You need to build all the functionality and, and test it and everything else. And so Beacon is a it's a pathway to get to that future, but it necessarily is a completely separate blockchain. This episode is brought to you by Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place and earn up to 8.5% per year on your Bitcoin. Download the Crypto.com app now to see the interest rates you could be earning on BTC and more than 20 other coins. Once in the app, you can apply for the Crypto.com metal card, which pays you up to 8% cash back on all purchases. Reserve yours in the Crypto.com app today. In this crisis, many investors aim to keep and grow their digital assets. Others seek to maximize the yield on their cash. Nexo allows you to achieve exactly these two goals. The company offers instant crypto credit lines against all major cryptocurrencies, with interest rates starting from only 5.9% APR. Nexo also lets you earn up to 10% annually on your fiat and digital assets. What's more, interest is paid out daily, and you can add or withdraw funds at any time. Get started at nexo.io. Introducing Elliptic, the preferred crypto compliance partner for businesses who want to grow with confidence. The busiest compliance teams rely on Elliptic's rigorous blockchain monitoring solutions to scale up and save money. Protect your customers. Manage your risk. Scale your business. Visit elliptic.co slash coindesk to talk to a crypto compliance expert today. That's elliptic.co slash coindesk. Aaron, one of the things that really kind of surprised me about your answer to the first question of, of what kind of questions are remaining is when you brought up this topic of composability. That was one of the things that surprised me the most about Ethereum 2.0, and that was how it could potentially, with its sharded environment, break composability. Aaron, was that surprising in your view? And do you mind explaining to our listeners 
the issue that composability is and what that even means for decentralized applications and especially decentralized finance within the DAP environment? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not going to paint myself as an expert on composability, but it does seem to be one of the recurring themes that you're you're hearing pretty much on a daily basis now across across the community, which is basically, I mean, the way I think of composability is essentially it's one app can like relate to another app, regardless of which sort of chain it's on or, or regardless of how it's how it's structured. So I can log into my MetaMask account and I can go and I can, you know, I can grab a feed from here, I can grab a feed from there, I can connect to this app, I can connect to that app. And it's basically kind of like a single sign-on, essentially. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure if that's like the technical definition of composability, to be perfectly honest, but that's just like, the way I think about it is, I, it allows me to, you know, to use all of these different applications, all these decentralized applications, essentially just on top of one another, right? Kind of building onto the whole like kind of money Lego or, you know, building block analogy that people like to use in the community. Honestly, this isn't like something I'm, I'm super well-versed, technically proficient on, so I don't know if I should be speaking to it like super liberally. But it's a theme that's come up in a lot of my conversations with people as I'm, you know, as I'm talking to potential speakers and trying to figure out which content is highly relevant for this event. And it's a theme that hasn't really, like, I don't think people have like fully grasped yet, I guess. The thing I appreciate about Ethereum is that there's always like a solution, like a very like solutions first mindset where they're like trying to build a solution to the problem that's directly in front of them. But then sometimes that ends up creating kind of like second, third level problems that you wouldn't have necessarily thought about initially. So if you end up getting into a situation where, for instance, you're using a layer two solution and, and, the, and the composability is broken or you're operating on a different shard from another shard, like you would, those apps may not necessarily work. Like the analogy that, um, you know, Hasib Qureshi, who's like a really kind of famous investor in the space, he likes to use is like the, the city's analogy of sharding, like there's going to be the DeFi shard, which is basically the like the New York City of shards, right? So if you want to participate in the DeFi environment, you have to go to this shard and use the apps that are built on that shard. But if you're in, you know, kind of the rural countryside shard, like you may not have access, you can't use these other apps that are living on other shards, essentially. So you have to go over to that shard physically. So it kind of breaks up the seamless flow of I can just log into my MetaMask and I can just log into whatever application. I can connect to whatever application I want. I can start trading and doing, you know, exchanging value and whatever without really any effort. It kind of breaks up that flow a little bit, which, you know, would obviously complicate things and create a bit more of like a, a silo or a walled garden in some sense. But that's the thing. I think that it's the second and third layer problems and issues that could potentially be created from an Ethereum 2.0 network and system that hasn't fully been discussed in my view and thought through. I think that because Ethereum 2.0 is a phased rollout, I'm sure that as problems arise, the roadmap will change in due time and will become a lot more detailed. But let's spend a little bit more time talking about some of these second and third layer repercussions of having an Ethereum 2.0 system versus what we have right now, just that one blockchain, Ethereum 1.0, and the kind of impacts that might have on DeFi and the DAP ecosystem. So Aaron, you were talking about this composability and having certain applications not able to run as conveniently on one shard, but perhaps two shards across three shards, or maybe even more. Michael, were there any second and third layer problems that you were thinking of as you were reading kind of the plan for Ethereum 2.0 that made you think, how are they going to figure this out? How is this going to work in practice? 
Well, I mean, I just, I, I tend to look at the big picture stuff. I don't get down into the weeds. And I'll tell you from the big picture stuff, I still worry about centralization. You know, I, I think they're, they're thinking hard about, you know, as they roll the, the beacon chain out, you know, how, how do we build in some sort of protection to encourage a more decentralized structure? But, um, you know, a, a proof of stake model, I think, does raise the risk of, you know, a number of whales just essentially taking things over. How do you protect against collusion? I mean, so far, it seems that in the you know universe of existing blockchains, the the risks we've seen for fifty one percent attacks and the like have been dominated by low value, small network proof of work blockchains. But the sort of broad idea of a decentralized participatory environment, I think it goes beyond the security question. It's it's really about who controls the destiny of this thing. I still I'm just not. I don't know. I, I, I see a lot of benefits in proof of stake. I see a lot of challenges in it. One of the challenges I think is, is, you know, this idea that it's not necessarily particularly democratic, if that's the right word to use. And I know people are really thinking about it. How do we sort of maintain decentralization? The big like unresolved issue that I'm really curious to see how it pans out is when, when staking goes live, what will be the incentive for people to actually stake for vis-a-vis Yield farming, you know, farming, you know, generating 100x returns farming hot dog coin or whatever, you know, whatever kind of like meme coin of the day is. Like, what's the incentive? I mean, the staking returns are for e staking are around like 20% initially, which in any ordinary scenario is pretty good. But given with, you know, the returns we've been seeing in, in kind of the, the liquidity mining space lately have been many multiples beyond that. So I'm curious as to why somebody, any, and I'm, I'm operating on the assumption that anybody who has the 32 ETH, who has just a pile of 32 ETH that they're sitting on, is probably sophisticated enough to go and participate in, you know, a yield farming project of some sort, or lock their ETH into, a, you know, lock their funds into a wire vault or something like that. So I'm just curious as to why would you take that 32 ETH? lock it up indefinitely by staking it, right? You're, you're essentially locking it up until, you know, until an indeterminate date in the future and you can't really use it again. Uh, so I, I'm just curious as to how, ma- how many people are actually willing to do that if these other kind of outrageous returns are still on the table. And maybe, it's, maybe there's a whole broader question about like portfolio management around this where it's like you treat staking like a bond and you treat yam and other coins as, as sort of you know, growth stocks or equities or, you know, Whenever I think of these sorts of questions, I can't help but think of what happens to the system because you can't maintain two systems that are out of sync with each other for too long without there being some sort of arbitrage solution to that that ultimately brings them together. So I don't. I think at some point it's a really good question. Like, does one or the other suffer as a result of the incentives against one? Right. So do people sort of stop looking out for DeFi yields if they can get twenty percent on their on their staked ETH, and vice versa? You know what's the incentive to participate in the whole staking phenomenon, which does raise questions about centralization, if you should just be finding crazy yields in DeFi. And I think what happens, and this is a whole other question that's really, I find fascinating, is that, again, financial engineers will step in and they will find ways for a fee, allow you to have your cake and eat it too. So that's why there will be tokenized versions of locked ETH that will then, I think, Right, which will effectively be a form of credit, right? Whether you call them a bond or not, it's a credit because the actual redeemability is still is withheld until a later date, right? 
that then becomes something, an asset, a security. Just think of how the repo market, again, I always go to the traditional finance world. People take their treasury securities and they then make money out of them by lending them into the securities lending market, the repo market. Something similar will happen, I think. That Ultimately, there'll be a whole DeFi industry around tokenized locked ETH. And that that's the way in which this actual arbitrage process will work. And I think that's just the natural order of things. Now, what's interesting, challenging potential to us is, is we are bringing credit into the system in a way. Like we're bringing and, and the various risks that come with that. Are there going to be counterparty risks in all of this, right? Does, do we need BitGo to step in and create a wrapped uh, locked ETH token? And then is BitGo, BitGo the risk factor here in how this whole thing plays out? You know, you know, I think they're all legitimate questions. But ultimately, somebody will figure out how to arbitrage this and and make money out of it, which will then resolve some of the questions that are going through your mind, Aaron, but at the same time, create a whole host of other questions. But those questions on Aaron's mind I, right now, I'm sure are going through the brains of people deciding whether or not to stake their 32 ETH at the launch of Ethereum 2.0. And I'm just shocked that that kind of financial innovation hasn't already started. Those kind of products to tell people hey, you're going to be locking your 32 ETH in right now and you don't know at all how liquid it's going to be. Here's a product that can give you some amount of insurance to be able to push you to make that step. It really seems as though the developers, at least that I've been speaking to, are banking on the altruism of Ethereum enthusiasts to be the first ones on board on Ethereum 2.0 launch, regardless of whether or not they're able to do the cost-benefit analysis of whether there's just better options for your ETH out there. And I, I don't know if creating those, those bond-like assets are a priority for Ethereum 2.0 launch. I think the way to think about it is, and I kind of alluded to before, is that there becomes like a whole new sort of you know, portfolio construction theory around this, where it's, if I want to you know, do 40% of my portfolio in bonds and 60% in equities or something, you stake 40% of my ETH, and then I go and I farm with the other 60% or something. And then, you know, that I have that, that 20, I'm getting that 20% return on that state geek sort of indefinitely, which by any other, I mean, we have to realize that like, we're talking about 20% return here, like it's nothing. In a 0% environment. Yeah. I mean, this is, it's pretty, pretty juicy in the real world. Yeah. Like in the real world, that's like astronomical, right? I think you'll see like a whole kind of, you know, some innovative thinking around like, how do you actually manage your portfolio of lower risk to high risk assets, like just in this whole, you know, uh, uh, just basically Ethereum based assets. And how does you basically use staking as a way to kind of hedge your hedge against some of your crazy uh, meme coin bets or something? I mean, maybe that's, that's, that's how it will all end up panning out. And I'm, and I'm sure, I'm sure it will pan out in some sense like that, where people will kind of rep basically just kind of copy and paste what they would have you know, portfolio design theory from, you know, traditional assets and be like, well, these are the equivalents here in Ethereum and DeFi. And we're just going to kind of replicate some of these old models that have worked in traditional finance. That's what I would expect to happen. Do you think that the lack of financial innovation and kind of discussion on portfolio management techniques and models, do you think the reason why there hasn't been that kind of conversation and that kind of product innovation now is because there's just too much uncertainty around Ethereum 2.0. When do we think that this kind of buzz and innovation will actually start to happen? I mean, the people, the folks that I've been talking to, the consensus seems to be that like, we're just going to wait for ETH2 to come on to go live, and then we'll start figuring out these ideas, right? I think even from a developer standpoint, like there's, 
there's an opportunity cost to where you invest your time, right? So like, there's so much money to be made in these other areas where you can spin up your own coin in 10 days. And like, why would you devote your time to something where you're like E2 staking, you know, product or something or, or derivative product that you're not even really sure like if and when it's going to go live and if it's going to work. But I think from a, that's my assumption would be that there's sort of an opportunity cost there from just the product developer side. But I also think, I mean, people have been waiting for ETH to, for ETH staking since, you know, 2015, right? It's kind of this, it's kind of this like magical thing that's just like always in the background, but you never, you're like, oh, maybe in a couple of years, we'll, we'll get that, right? So I think there's just other stuff that people have been drawn to that's been consuming their attention. And they're just like, well, we'll, we'll cross this ETH2 bridge when we get there. Well, it's also useful to remember, look at how quickly things get spun up in the DeFi environment, right? So, uh, you know, I, I wonder whether once we do know for sure that it's launching, you know, the, the wizards of DeFi will suddenly say, here it is, here's my solution. It's, it's this, this, this and that, right? And maybe it's just all quietly being worked on. I mean, I am somewhat surprised because I would think, you know, we, did, we heard quite a lot about staking as a service very early on. I suppose, to be honest, those services are already being provided in other proof of stake chains. And so that's there. This is a very new concept, I suppose, uh, the, the locked ETH concept. So they, they're just, they're just going to wait and they'll turn it around very, very quickly. Uh, things move pretty fast in that DeFi world. Just on the topic of other proof of stake networks, were there any particulars about the staking dynamics on Ethereum 2.0? that you thought, Michael, would differentiate it from what's going on on, say, you know, Tezos or different proof-of-stake networks that have already launched, have already seen what happens to those issues, like you said, of stake centralization and also of a certain percentage of their circulating supply being illiquid, you know, locked into the network. What kind of dynamics do you think are going to play into the value of ETH once those dynamics go live? I never like to think I'm not, I'm not going to be in the weeds. And so I don't know the ins and outs of, of uh, the staking. I, I think I was, I was quite struck, you know, reading your report, Christine, uh, about the, the schedule of the monetary policy and how, you know, it, it slides over time. And I don't know, I don't, I don't know, to be honest, whether it's sort of what, how that compares to other places, but I'm sure those are the sorts of things that will make really significant differences, right? I mean, even if, even if everybody has a monetary policy of some sort that has a similar kind of approach, the differences of rates and everything else are, in, you know, are infinite to what they could be. So that will be a, a factor. But other, another thing I think that's really important to think about, though, is like, what is the point of the staking? You know, what do you get as a staker, as the validator? Right? What, what is your role? So Tezos, of course, has this whole governance structure around it. And it's a, very, it's a sophisticated kind of uh, evolving governance model. And therefore, the way that you would view your staking responsibilities, I think, would be different. Again, I don't know, but I'm just speculating that you treat this potentially as a participatory thing in a, in a, in a democratic model. I, 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 I don't know. But in any case, is how, much, how different is that from Ethereum? Right? What, is, what are the rights that come with you know, the, this, this stake? Right? And, and of course, there always is significant amount of, of governance power just by being a participant in maintaining the blockchain, but it's very different from something that's very deliberate like Tezos. And then you've got something like, you know, EOS and these others where there's the whole other layer, right, of, of you know, delegated proof of stake. And so, you know, what stakes you, you take charge of and how you play that in your, you know, attempt to create this, this sort of larger entity 
um, is, is, a, is a very strategic thing within that framework. So look, I, I've got no idea where it goes because I don't, I don't, as I say, I don't, I'm not that well informed about the details of every POS system. But I do think that these, these governance structures and these monetary policy models are going to have a very, very different impact. You can't just model one and say this will happen in Ethereum because I think that it's precisely, as I said before, those constraints and restrictions that governance represents that are going to dictate the decision-making, not only of investors, but also of, of validators and how, they, and how they see their role, I suppose, as stewards of the system. More questions than answers for this. <laughs> what I would say to that is, is I think it's kind of hard to like extrapolate too much from lessons learned from other platforms to Ethereum because at least to my knowledge, like I don't know of any other platform that's actually fully transformed itself from a proof of work into a proof of stake blockchain at this level of scale. Like I don't think that's ever happened before. So, you know, whereas other platforms have all started, you know, just from from scratch essentially as proof of stake, like Ethereum has undergone this full transition. And it's, it's doing so at when it's already at like a you know pretty large scale, which is pretty you know it's pretty unprecedented. So I'm not really sure like what I'm sure there's some lessons you could extrapolate, but I don't know what exactly you know how how well that would necessarily apply. So I think that's the thing that people don't necessarily realize what ETH2 is like. It's literally like a whole new blockchain that they've built, right? Like they're porting over this you know this this whole rollout is, is basically porting over everything from ETH1 over to ETH2 and all these different phases. It's just, it's an entirely new blockchain. It's and like the analogy I've been thinking about and trying to think of like a real world analogy to, to compare this to is like in, in the 1950s, Brazil, like they actually moved their capital city from like Rio de Janeiro was the capital and they actually moved the capital to Brasilia, which was a brand new city that they built like in the middle of nowhere, kind of like in the desert or like the kind of the semi-arid interior. And they literally just built this whole, this new city from scratch. Like they dammed a bunch of rivers, created a lake and you know, they they moved the capital from Rio, an established city, into this hinterland, uh, kind of middle of nowhere, you know, new place. And they had to, you know, they had to pay people, pay up employee, government employees to like move their families to this new area and stuff. And they had to build up everything, they had to build the infrastructure, they had to build all the, you know, the plumbing and the sewers and everything, and the roads. And it was this, this, I mean, it basically like almost like bankrupted the country in the process because it was so expensive, but they actually successfully moved the capital from one location to another. Kind of seems like it's the same type of, you know, undertaking here that's happening with Ethereum, where they're, they're literally going to a new, this isn't just like an upgraded chain. Like this is literally a whole new blockchain that they're trying to port over. So anyway, it's, it's a fascinating experiment. It's really hard to come up with like sort of prescient um, uh, like analogs here. To what extent would you say that these questions and these unknowns about the Ethereum 2.0 network that we've discussed in the last, say, 30 minutes are going to be the topics of panels and the topics of keynotes in the Ethereum economy event. Yeah, yeah. So there'll be, you know, there'll be a lot of talk about Vitalik's going to give an opening keynote on um, kind of ETH2 and the road ahead. And he's going to be, it looks like we're going to be getting quite a bit of news coming out or maybe not necessarily news, but progress and developments coming out over the next two, three weeks in the lead up to the events that he's going to be, he's going to be sharing a bit about. We'll be having a breakdown of really kind of the, the monetary policy and the game theory of how this whole e, e 2.0 world is going to work, how all of the, the various actors are going to be incentivized to dance together. There'll be, there'll be a lot of talk about staking. 
staking as a service, um, even the question of why you'd want to stake vis-a-vis yield farming or whatever else you might be doing. And there'll be a lot of talk about some of the other activity going on in the Ethereum world as well, uh, DeFi and, and NFTs and stable coins and uh, derivatives and things of that nature. And you know, we're going to be really kind of diving into these issues from the you know using the lens of like what is the ETH two what does the ETH two transition mean for you know these particular other kind of parts of the components of the, of the Ethereum economy. And I think it's something that people haven't like really paid as much attention. There's been so much other activity going on in the last six months that people have kind of like ETH two migration is a bit under the radar in the sense that there's just more urgent things that people are devoting their energy to. So I think a lot of folks aren't necessarily aware that a this is even happening. Uh, and B, like, you know, what type of impacts it's going to have uh, to the Ethereum, Ethereum ecosystem as a whole. So we've really kind of constructed the whole conference agenda with that in mind and really trying to give, you know, trying to, trying to break this down for kind of your average person or, you know, stakeholder in the crypto world and, and also giving them, um, you know, equipping them with information and also tools and, and just actionable information to how to actually participate, right? Or how to sort of understand some of these concepts that, maybe have been sort of a bit nebulous here too for so I'm really excited for it we we really obviously should you know on the content side we always forget about the commercial part of this but we definitely should plug the plug the event uh, october 14th people october 14th make sure that you you, you sign up for it it's i, I think we're, we're really lucky um you know this this wasn't by design we've been thinking about this conference for a while but to see all of these things come together is really uh, is really interesting at this time because it's it, yes, conference is somewhat structured around you know the uh, Ethereum 2.0 upgrade. That's a kind of a framing for it. But because of the fact that DeFi is is going through this really interesting phase, and as Aaron mentioned, NFTs and, and and other things, we've got this chance to to look at this upgrade through the lens of a particular moment in Ethereum's history. We've also got a bunch of books that have come out, right? We've got, you know, uh, Cami Russo uh, uh, sort of speaking it, at it, Matt Leesing's book. You know, the, pe- pe- Ethereum is really at, at the center of people's attention right now. And I think one of the things that's interesting about that is how no other blockchain, obviously, other than Bitcoin, um, and, and, and in a very, very different way from Bitcoin, you know, Ethereum has developed this community, this real, uh, and I think, you know, when we talk about whether there will be an ETH killer or not, yes, you may have greater scalability or composability or, you know, interoperability or whatever ability you need. Um, but unless you get community, something like rivaling what Ethereum has, it's going to be really hard, right? And so, uh, what I find fascinating about being able to explore these questions right now is to also frame it in within the context of like, okay, this is the Ethereum community. What do they think about it? What are they, what's their decision-making going to be? And, and is it enough to draw upon that sort of, you know, wellspring of, of just enthusiasm of buzz that they, you know, you, 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 that we've seen over the years at DevCon conferences and the like to, to sort of, have people committed to make this project work. And I think like bringing everyone together at this conference is going to be exciting for us to be the first Ethereum conference that we've done just narrowly focused on this group to sort of be part of how that community operates, I think is a, is a really interesting experience. Thank you so much, Michael and Aaron, for exploring some of those unanswered questions about Ethereum 2.0 with me, but also giving us a preview of what attendees and interested 
people can expect from the Invest Ethereum Economy event. I appreciate you guys and your time. Thanks for having us, Christine. Thank you. For everybody that's listening, you can find social media links to connect with Michael and Aaron in today's show notes. And you'll also be able to find a registration link to the Ethereum Economy event as they've given a great explanation of why you should go ahead and register right now. Once again, I'm Christine Kim, a research analyst at Coindesk. You can also find links to listen back on any prior episodes to this series by going to the Coindesk website. You'll also find there the free Ethereum 2.0 explainer report, which was highlighted by Michael in this episode. It features additional commentary from Ethereum 2.0 developers and some good visualizations helping explain the dynamics of the network. You can stay up to date with the Coindesk research team and be the first to hear about our new reports, webinars, and definitely new podcasts on Twitter by following at Coindesk Data. Thank you to all of our listeners who have tuned in weekly for this series. I hope to see you at next Wednesday's Invest Ethereum Economy event. Cheers.